0: So we're in the first half of Daniel, chapter 8. We're still in the reign of Belshazzar, so we are still in that flashback mode. Daniel having brought us up to speed with Darius replacing Belshazzar with the Medo-Persian Empire conquering the Babylonians. But then he now goes back in these next chapters to share with us some visions that he's had. First of all, during the reign of Belshazzar, who of course now is dead... So let's read verses uh, 1 through 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, O oh me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw that there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power and i saw him confronting the ram he was moving with rage against him attacked the ram and broke his two horns there was no power in the ram to withstand him but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand therefore the male goat grew very great but when he became strong the large horn was broken and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Let's pray. This section, first before we pray this section of daniel presents us with something of a history lesson but it also once again proves the incredible precision and accuracy of bible prophecy let's pray father god we thank you for this passage in daniel that we're going to be studying today we pray once again that you would cause your holy spirit to give us insight and understanding to what we are studying and we pray that we would learn and grow and prosper in our spirits because of this time of Bible study today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, here we are in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. That's when Daniel receives this particular vision. This would be 551 B.C., two years after the vision of chapter 7 that we just finished studying last week, and before the fall of Babylon that we studied prior to that, which took place in 539. So this is some... 12 years before the fall of Babylon, the death of Belshazzar. Daniel has this vision, so he was probably in his late 60s, 70s, somewhere in that age range. And as we will see this morning, this is a vision concerning the second and third world empires. Daniel had visions and, and interpretations regarding the four great world empires, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman Empire parts 1 and 2, 2 being the last days. So this predates the handwriting on the wall and the destruction of Babylon in chapter 5. A vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So the first vision was the vision of the four beasts and the Ancient of Days, which we completed last week. You remember in Daniel's early years, he was called upon to interpret the dreams and visions of the kings, Nebuchadnezzar, and then more recently, Belshazzar. But now in his later years, he begins to have dreams and visions of his own. This is one of them. This is the second one that we've studied. Verse 2, I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam or Shushan the palace, as some translations read. I was in Shushan the palace, which was about 250 miles east of Babylon. He's there in his vision. And I was beside the Ulai Canal. The Ulai was a man-made canal that was located just a few miles from the palace. So he's there in that royal city. He's beside the canal. He said, I lifted my eyes and saw... And there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. This represents the Medo-Persian empire, the the empire that conquered Babylon. The two horns represent the two people groups, Medes and Persians. One was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So even though Persia was the younger kingdom, younger than the, the Medes, under Cyrus, who appointed Darius, over that realm that was previously known as Babylon, or still known as Babylon, but now under their control. Under Cyrus, the uh, Persian part of the Medo-Persian Empire became the dominant one around 550 B.C. So this is why the, the one horn rises up higher than the other. The higher one came up last. The younger empire actually became the more dominant one. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward and southward and so Cyrus and his successors conquered westward including Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor northward including Armenia and the Caspian Sea region and southward including Egypt and Ethiopia. And that's represented here by the westward, northward and southward movement of the ram. So that no animal could withstand it. So in, in this uh, vision of Daniel's the animals represent various people groups that the Persians were conquering. Just as the, the ram with the two horns represented the Medo Persian Empire, then the other animals that could not withstand him are the people groups that they were conquering throughout the region. Verse 5 As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. This is Greece. Across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And so history tells us the Greek army swept through Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Mesopotamia in just three years' time, from 334 to 331 B.C. This would be some 200 years after Daniel wrote this. So Daniel is given a very clear, very specific view of history that would be occurring within the next several hundred years after his time on earth was finished. The goat had a notable horn between its eyes, and this is understood to represent Alexander the Great. Then he came to the ram. Notice not an it, but a he. So we're interwoven here between the the analogy of the animal kingdom and the fact that this is actually a person. He came to the ram that had two horns, the Medo-Persian empire, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So the Persian forces, interestingly enough, outnumbered the Greeks. But in two decisive battles, the Medo-Persian empire collapsed. And again, God had determined that this would take place. God raises up kings and kingdoms, and he takes down kings and kingdoms. Just as the American forces were far outnumbered by the English in the Revolutionary War, not just in terms of numbers. The British obviously had a lot more soldiers, and then they brought in the German Hessians to work with them. Far outnumbered, better trained, better equipped. The Revolutionary forces in America during the Revolutionary War often fought with, you know, pickaxes and scythes and anything they could get their hands on. Some of them actually had guns. And yet, in spite of being greatly outnumbered in every way, the American patriots won the war, right? And then we think also of, remember Gideon's army? 300 against 160,000? And so we have a similar situation here where even though Alexander was outnumbered, he conquered the known world. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. As history again tells us, Alexander was burned out after years of heavy drinking, serious woundings, possible bouts with typhoid and malaria. And so Alexander, after a very serious 10-day illness, died at the height of his power at age 32. So the large horn was broken. This is from history.com. When Alexander the Great died in Babylon in 323 B.C., his body did not begin to show signs of decomposition for a full six days, according to historical accounts. To the ancient Greeks, this confirmed what they all thought about the young Macedonian king, And what Alexander believed about himself, that he was not an ordinary man, but a god. Just 32 years old, he had conquered an empire stretching from the Balkans to modern Pakistan and was poised on the edge of another invasion when he fell ill and died after 12 days. I said 10, I guess it was 12. 12 days of excruciating suffering. Since then, historians have debated his cause of death, proposing everything from malaria, typhoid, and alcohol poisoning, to assassination by one of his rivals. But in one theory, a scholar and practicing clinician suggests that Alexander may have suffered from a neurological disorder, Jelaine-Barr syndrome, GBS, which caused his death. She also argues that people not have noticed any immediate signs of decomposition on the body for one simple reason. Listen to this. Because Alexander wasn't dead yet. And so there's also a possibility that he he gave all the appearance of being dead but was still technically alive for several days. This is not unknown. We've heard of people being buried alive. Crazy, rare, but it does happen. So in place of this horn, Alexander, who is now broken, in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So after Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. Cassander took Macedonia, Thrace and much of Asia Minor went to Lysimachus, Seleucus took Mesopotamia and Iran, and Ptolemy claimed Egypt. There was a fifth general, Antigonus, and he ruled for a while in Asia Minor and Syria, but was eventually defeated by the other generals at Ipsus in 301 BC. So now we see a glimpse of our next empire. Verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now this is not the same horn that we saw in chapter 7, verse 8, because that horn is the Antichrist. And again, as you can imagine, these horns represent power. So when we see these horns, it's representative of power. Not the same horn as 7-8, which will arise out of the restored Roman Empire, the Antichrist. So this little horn came out of Greece and refers to Antiochus IV Epiphanes of the Seleucid dynasty. And he became so insane that he was later called Epinemes. Epinemes, Antiochus, instead of Epiphanes, Epinemes, which means maniac, instead of Epiphanes. Epiphanes tongue twisters so he was distinct from the little horn of chapter 7 but he's seen as a type and a forerunner of the antichrist of revelation and we'll see more about why that is in just a moment notice amongst the areas that he uh he grew great in the south the east and the glorious land of course that is israel and we'll see what happened there in just a moment with him antiochus and israel it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Our understanding here is this: referring to the Jews or the angels of heaven and probably both. It grew up to the host of heaven. Now, as far as this idea of stars, Daniel twelve three, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so there are biblical uh, references to believers shining like the stars of heaven, as well as the angelic beings. Revelation 12:1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. This is the nation of Israel. We studied this in Revelation. The 12 stars represent the 12 tribes. So when it talks here about this, Antiochus, Casting down some of the hosts, some of the stars of the ground, trampled them. It's a reference to his persecution of God's people, which were the Jews. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. This, of course, was Satan's attempt to destroy Jesus before he could go to the cross and die for our sins. So we see all of this prophetic stuff kind of intermingled here, casting down some of the hosts, some of the stars to the ground, trampling them. And so there's that correlation also with Satan, Lucifer, who will personally indwell the Antichrist, casting down a third of the stars, the angels, who went with him in his rebellion. But God's people, the Jews, were horribly persecuted by Antiochus and that's why they, we see him as a forerunner of the Antichrist and also we see the correlation with his aspirations, the aspirations of the Antichrist and the aspirations of Satan himself, Isaiah fourteen thirteen, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. And so we see this throughout the history of the world with these tyrannical tyrant dictators hungry for power. They are motivated, inspired, and even controlled by Satan himself. And a common thread is always the persecution of God's people, both the Jews and the Christians. We see that rising up in our world today, do we not? Not? Absolutely. Throughout human history, Satan has been looking for a man through whom he could rule the world and usurp God's glory, taking away the worship that rightfully belongs to God alone. And even now, it would appear that the Pope is working. We showed a video recently, I believe, on that, working with all the various religions of the world, the religious leaders, the Buddhists, the Muslims the Hindus, on and on it goes, to form a one world religion which will ultimately be overseen by the false prophet, the right hand man of the Antichrist, the beast. Verse 11 he, Antiochus, so we haven't really gotten to the Roman Empire yet, this is an interlude between the Greeks and the Romans. Antiochus was a regional guy who had a sphere of influence for a short time. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. The prince of the host would be Jesus. In his pre-incarnate form, his sanctuary was, take, was cast down. So he, the little horn Antiochus, who came to the throne in 175 B.C., he exalted himself as, the high, as high as the prince of the host. And just like the Antichrist will do in the last days, Antiochus tried to set himself up as God. God is called the Lord of hosts, by the way, in the Old Testament 245 times. That's a lot. So the Father is the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, the prince of the host. And again, we're reminded We've covered this verse quite a few times in recent weeks because of its relevancy to what we're studying. 2 Thessalonians 2.4, the coming Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. This will happen halfway through the tribulation when he sets himself in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, sets himself up as God, And then that all-out persecution against Jews and Christians will be launched. The Christians who become Christians during the millennium. We will be in heaven. Verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. So once again, the Jewish priesthood had become corrupt reintroducing the people to idolatry this was during that time about 170 years before Christ the priesthood had become corrupt and um, they had brought idolatry back and once again they're going to be judged for it this time at the hands of Antiochus from the believers study Bible in bitter reprisal against the Jews Antiochus attacked Jerusalem killing 50,000 men women and children I've told you so many times, God is pro-life, Satan is pro-death. And again, down through human history, we can see so many ungodly rulers, hands-bloodied with the lives of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. And again, we think of the issue of abortion. 60 million plus babies killed in America since Roe v. Wade was, a, was approved by the Supreme Court. Now it's been overturned and the forces of hell have been unleashed. The devil doesn't like it when you mess with his game plan. So, he sold an additional 40,000 people into slavery. So now we're up to 90,000. The temple was dedicated under Antiochus, God's temple in Jerusalem was dedicated to juniper with a statue, and on the great bronze altar, a sow, a pig, was offered as a sacrifice. Talk about the ultimate defilement of the altar and the temple. The juices of which were liberally spread throughout the temple precincts to make sure the whole temple was defiled. He used harlots in the temple to celebrate Saturnalia, and forbade the observance of the Sabbath, the reading of Scripture, and circumcision. Now, interestingly, none of the previous world leaders, Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4, 31 through 34, Darius, 6, 27 and 28, Cyrus, Ezra 1, 2 through 4, or Artaxerxes Longimanus, Ezra 7.12, none of these men, be they pagan, or believer, we know Nebuchadnezzar ultimately became a believer, but none of them had systematically opposed the religious worship of the Jews as Antiochus would, or as the Antichrist will in the near future. So the slaughtering of this pig, and this is where some of the preterist persuasion, we've talked before about this, I'm not going to go back over all the different theological positions on prophecy eschatology end times but the preterists believe everything in prophecies already happened so why are we still here then right so they believe that the slaughtering of the pig by antiochus on the altar in the temple was the abomination of desolation however you probably know this but in the bible Many passages of Scripture have multiple applications. There can be an immediate application as well as a futuristic application. Just as there have been many antichrists in the world leading up to the antichrist, this was the first incarnation of the abomination of desolation. Daniel 9.27. We're going to get to that soon, obviously, and I'm looking forward to it. It's great. Daniel 70 weeks. And here Daniel is speaking of the coming Antichrist, the prince of the people who will come. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. One week, as we will learn in chapter 9, equals seven years, the seven-year tribulation. He shall confirm a covenant, or a peace agreement, if you will, when they shall say, peace and safety. What is every president in recent history, as well as other world leaders, put at the top of their list over the last several decades, a Middle East peace treaty, right? Nobody's been able to do it. But the coming Antichrist will, and he will be hailed as the Savior of the world for doing it. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So Daniel's prophecy makes it clear, and it'll be more clear as we get into that chapter and study it in more depth, that the ultimate abomination of desolation is not the sacrifice of the pig by Antiochus on the altar 160, 70 years before Christ. But it was a precursor to it. It was a type. It was the first incarnation. But then Matthew 24, 15, Jesus gives his prophecy 150 years, 60 years after Antiochus. Therefore, when you see, remember now, Jesus' disciples, they were standing in front of the temple and looking at its magnificence. And Jesus is telling them, well, Not one stone is going to be left upon another. Probably crushed their hearts to hear that. He's talking to them about the last days. And so they ask him, what will be the signs of these things, of the last days and of your coming, your return? And he begins to tell them all the things that are going to be happening, wars, rumors of wars, pestilences and so forth, earthquakes in diverse places and so on. And then here in verse 15, he tells his disciples... Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by, the, by Daniel the prophet, hello, Jesus here is referencing Daniel 9, 27. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, the temple, which, by the way, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, which took place in 70 AD. There hasn't been a temple for almost 2,000 years. I just saw another article about the fact, as I've told you many times, everything regarding the temple is already ready, in place, can be put up in no time at all. Have you ever been driving down the street or the interstate or wherever, and all of a sudden you see a new building and you go, where did that come from? Right? I don't remember that being there. How did they get that up so fast? That's exactly what's going to happen with the temple. One of these days it's just going to pop up. And whatever God has to do to prepare the way, he will do. And those believing Jews who are at the very core of the project to rebuild the temple, they know that God can do it and will do it. They believe that he will. But unfortunately, what they don't realize, it will ultimately become the temple of the Antichrist. And when Christ returns, he will build his temple. So Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then in parenthesis, whoever reads, let him understand. You need to have insight and understanding on this. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And this is a reference to the massive airlift. You'll read about that in Revelation chapter 12. We studied that. A massive airlift of Jews fleeing Jerusalem fleeing Israel and most likely winding up in the rock fortress city of Petra or Petra over in Jordan. Jesus prophesized about that referencing back to Daniel. Now, if the sacrifice of the pig by Antiochus was the ultimate abomination of desolation, why did Jesus predict it as a future event 150 years later? You see? It's yet to happen after the temple's rebuilt, after the Antichrist comes to power, halfway through the tribulation. But Antiochus was certainly one of a number of Antichrist's small AC versus the big AC. And the scripture, which we've covered repeatedly, represents the final abomination. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, written by Paul, After the death and resurrection of Christ, around 60 A.D., 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And we're already seeing. Paul also told us there'd be a great falling away, apostasy in the last days. We're seeing a perversion, a dilution, a distortion of the truth of God's Word in many churches. Joe Cannell was just sharing with me how he ran into a lady who was kind of trying to invite him to church, this church of God, and she talked about God as a she. And you see more and more of these kinds of things, again, trying to turn, twist, pollute, dilute, and pervert the truth of God's Word there are fewer and fewer so-called Christian churches that are actually teaching the truth. There's a big split. One of the big mega United Methodist churches just split off from the denomination because of the denomination is now openly, gladly ordaining homosexuals, lesbians, transgenders. I don't know how much you guys follow the news, And I know some of you get mad at me for putting it in your face. But there are now so-called pastors coming out as transgender, bringing drag queens into their churches. The level of perversion, folks. Now, this was Billy Graham, who actually got it from his wife, Ruth, like 50 years ago, said, if God waits much longer to judge America, he's going to have to apologize to... Sodom and Gomorrah folks we're there I'm pretty sure we've passed up Sodom and Gomorrah if you want to know the truth so if you have any doubt about where we're living in the last days I would encourage you to think again the good news that means Jesus is coming soon but I'm telling you I am I don't know if tormented is too strong of a word maybe it's not but daily I'm vexed by what they're doing to our children. And many of these moronic, deceived, brain-dead parents are going right along with it. Oh, my little boy wants to be a girl. Okay, cool. My little girl wants to be a boy. That's great. Bring on the testosterone. I mean, who would have ever thought that we'd be seeing what we're seeing today? If you don't think the demonic powers, the satanic powers are being unleashed on this planet like never before, think again. It's happening. And if we dare to even remotely encourage, compromise, sit back, then we are just as guilty as they are. And in fact, from what I recall, Jesus said, it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean than to stumble one of these little ones of mine and that's what they're doing right now. It just tells you what a gracious God we have that he hasn't torched them all already. And we all deserve to be torched but we can avoid being torched by being under the blood of the lamb. Being forgiven of our sins by the grace of God. Again, that's why it's so important that we vote at least we can say God I I prayed I sought you I tried to make my best decision my best choice but if we do nothing then we're responsible too if you're voting for people who are pro-abortion pro-death pro-transgender pro-gay marriage pro all of the above because you see it and I've been talking about this for so long it's progressive sin is progressive It starts with people endorsing homosexuality and lesbianism and transgenderism, and now they're promoting pedophilia too. It never ends. It never stops. It gets worse and worse and worse until one day they're going to look at you and say, you're the pervert, not these people, and we're going to lock you up. That's okay. You can't lock up a child of God. No matter where we are, what the circumstances, what the conditions, we are free in Christ. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said that to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And so actually what we have here, Daniel is observing a conversation between two angels. My suspicion is they know the answer. Yes, he said to me, verse 14, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So here again we see an interweaving of prophecies in the not too distant future and prophecies in the distant future. In this case, again, referencing the cleansing of the temple after Antiochus defiled it. And this is interesting. This is right on the money again. 2,300 days, Antiochus' persecution of the Jews lasted for 2,300 days, 6.39 years, the period from 171 B.C. when peaceful relations between Antiochus and the Jews came to an end. Again, the corrupt priests were in cahoots with Antiochus, just like there were corrupt priests in World War II who were in cahoots with Hitler. But it came to an end uh, uh, to December 25th, 165 B.C. You've heard of the Maccabees, right? When Judas Maccabeus and his troops restored the temple for its proper worship. And so we have the short-term prophecy here, but we also have the long view into the future, the time that you and I are now living in. Folks, this should be extremely encouraging to you. There is virtually and literally no other book on planet Earth with the prophetic specificity and accuracy of the Bible. God's holy word. Nothing like it. You don't ever have to doubt it. You don't ever have to question it. No matter what anybody says or does, God's word speaks for itself. Precise. Specific. Thank you, Jesus. Let's stand. Before Roy leads us in a closing song, we want to have prayer. We want to have opportunity here for prayer requests. So, If you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. God sees your hands. He's here with us right now. Do you believe that? The Holy Spirit is here. Father God, we thank you for your word, the incredible accuracy and specificity of your word, Lord, and prophecy, which is one-third of all Scripture. Lord, so we know that you want us to study it and know it and understand it and learn it and we're doing it and we thank you for it. Lord, we pray that you continue to give us strength, endurance as end times believers. Lord, what an honor and a privilege it is to be living in these times. As much as we've talked about how bad things are and yet we are honored to be living in this time, Lord. Help us to rise up to that calling that you've placed upon us as end times believers, to stand firm, to stand strong, to stand with you, Lord, to stand for the truth, not to back down, not to compromise, not to give in, but to lovingly persuade people as you enable us by your Holy Spirit to come out of darkness into the light. Lord, there is still hope. We know that as long as uh, we have breath, as long as anyone has breath, they can still repent of their sins, they can come to Christ, they can be born again, they can receive the precious gift of eternal life. Lord, please help us to be your vessels, to be your vehicles, to reach people, the lost people of this world. And Lord, we thank you that as believers we do have protection. We do have a hedge of protection around us. Lord, no matter how perilous it may be out there, if you be for us, no one can be against us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thank you, God. And Father, now I want to lift up all those who raised their hand, Lord, even some who didn't, because we know that there could be other issues here this morning on people's hearts and minds that they may not have raised their hand, but especially for those who raised their hand and publicly indicated their need for prayer today, that you would touch them, touch those near and dear to them. Lord, we pray that for those maybe perhaps who are seeking to be filled with your Spirit, to be more guided, directed, led and controlled by your Holy Spirit, empowered by your Holy Spirit, Lord, please pour out your Spirit upon them even now and help them to receive without hesitation, without reservation, any and all of the spiritual gifts that you would have for them. Just pour out your Spirit upon them now, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Help them to receive whatever you have for them. And Lord, for encouragement, for strengthening from mental and emotional stress and strain, anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, Lord, drive those things far from us, we pray in Jesus' name. Pray for healing, Lord. You are the great physician. I guess we could also say you're the great psychiatrist. Lord, that you can heal our hearts and minds. You said you came to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. We pray that you would do that, Father, in Jesus' name. And for those with physical health issues, Lord, those can really hinder us from being all that we want to be and doing all that we want to do for you, Lord. We pray for, for healing. For everything from allergies and sinus infections and colds and flus to COVID-19 to leukemia to cancer, Lord, whatever it might be. Lord, we know nothing is too difficult for you. With you, all things are possible. We put our hope, our faith, and our trust in you, Lord, to heal us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that's suffering under a heavy burden physically, that you would encourage them, strengthen them, uplift them, draw them near to you, give them everything they need to persevere, to endure, to be victorious. Lord, we pray for relationships that have been damaged or broken. Lord, we know that the enemy comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We ask that you would bring healing, restoration to marriages, friendships, other relationships that are important in our lives, Father, that when they're broken, it causes great stress and distress, Please pour out your healing upon those relationships and help us to be guided and directed by your Spirit on how we can be instruments of your peace, to be peacemakers, to be those who are instruments of reconciliation whenever possible, Lord. And when we can't, then we would just help us to rest in you, to trust you, to be at peace about it. Finally, we pray for those struggling economically. Lord, these are perilous times we're living in. Everything's rising. Prices are rising. Gas is rising. Supply chain issues. Lord, help us keep our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith, to trust you for provision. No matter what we see with our physical eyes, help us to fix our eyes on you, Lord. And we thank you that you are our provider. And if you'd help us to learn better in these last days how to work together to help one another, Lord, it's going to be more and more important as we draw closer to the end that we learn how to share, to encourage each other, help each other. We thank you, God, for your provision. Whether it be much or little, we will give you praise and thanks. And we honor you now with the fruit of our lips as we sing our final song. In Jesus' name, amen.